A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the social psychologist and writer, Dr. Thomas Curran. In his new book, The Perfectionist Trap, Thomas examines the increased human obsession with being perfect, where it comes from, the damage it does to our mental health, and what we can do to stop it. If you ever suffer from feelings of failure or nagging worries that you're just not good enough, and frankly, who doesn't have those feelings one time or another? I think you'll find this conversation really helpful and interesting. I know I did. So please enjoy. Tom, welcome to The Reset. Thank you, Sam, for having me. Real pleasure. Um, fantastically interesting book. Uh, really interested to know more about um, what brought you to write it. First of all, though, what's what's your background uh, uh, in terms of like, the, you know, you're an academic. What is it that led you into um, the subject of perfectionism as, as a sort of speciality? Oh, goodness me. Uh, Well, my background is short story. Grew up in a very small town called Wellingborough, uh, which isn't so small anymore, but it was when I first grew up here. Um, And went to university, was going to be a PE teacher. That was my original intention. And then uh, somehow, I guess I must have impressed one of the professors at at the uh, university I was at, and I got invited to do a, a PhD um and suddenly that kind of put a lot of pressure on myself because i came from this small town world into this kind of middle class very like kind of competitive world uh wasn't really prepared for like the uh the challenge and uh the amount of expectation that other people placed on me and i placed on myself and uh i did the phd uh i and i you know, got a, got a, my first job in Australia, but that was when things started to really like get out of control. I, I was just putting too much pressure on myself. I was trying to outperform other people all the time, um, you know, for things like grants and publications and all that sort of stuff that we're judged on in the academic world. And that just overwhelmed me really. Uh, and I started to get a lot of mental health problems that were associated with putting too much pressure on myself. Um, and I came to the understanding that it was really perfectionism that was the root of the problem. Um, and so really that was kind of my impetus to try and understand more about perfectionism, how it impacts us uh, and where it comes from. Uh, so I started looking at perfectionism and here I am today really writing the book on it, uh, trying to shed more light on this really curious trait and bust a few myths about what it is and how it impacts us. So in your own case, um, do you think it was largely linked to sort of like class, imposter syndrome, that sort of stuff? Is that sort of what you think was driving you to a large extent? I think so, yeah. I mean, perfectionism is partly genetic. So about 30 to 40% of perfectionism is genetic. So I think that there's probably some genetic component to my perfectionism underneath. But absolutely, the rest of perfectionism is very much learned in the outside world. And one of the things, as you just said there, I think imposter syndrome, imposter phenomenon is something that really was a big uh, 
driver of my anxiety and worry about how I was appearing and how I was performing relative to other people. Uh, I didn't really feel like feel like I belonged in um, an elite academic institution because you don't, for someone from from my background, that there's not a great deal of people that you can share experience with. So you feel a little bit alone and isolated and you kind of develop this desperate need, I suppose, to lift yourself above others. Um, and it, it really becomes quite paralyzing, actually, that pressure. Um, so I definitely think there's all sorts of things that play, play a part. Class, definitely um, the pressurized competitive uh, culture of academic institutions. And then also, you know, the pressure that you put on yourself because you see those pressures in the outside world and you internalize them as a need to be perfect. So I think definitely it all plays a role. Uh, and it certainly has done in my perspective. What did you mean talk about the mental health problems? I mean, how old were you when that happened? And and do you mind my asking like how, how it actually manifested itself? Absolutely. So I would say I've always been an anxious kid. So from a very young age, um, I've always kind of had an anxious predisposition. And one of the things that I really struggled with from a very young age, I was a very um good athlete. Uh, I played football at a quite a high level. Um and I also played tennis. So I, I got actually injured myself when I played football. I had growing pains. I had to come out of the academy system. So I decided to play tennis. And um, it was evident to me through those sporting uh, encounters when I look back that I was, I struggled with the higher pressure situations when when the going got really tough and things things started to get squeaky bum time. You know, you were it, mixing it with, you know, the best in the area or the um, even sometimes the best in the country. I couldn't handle that pressure very well as a young person. I used to choke a lot. Uh, I, I used to kind of succumb in the vital moments. Uh, so I think I always carried a bit of anxiety. Um, but when I got older and I, as I said, I went into this kind of pressure cooker environment of the elite university and everything was sort of every person for themselves, um, that's when my mental health problems really started to uh, have a significant impact on my life. And I first began to see it when um, I had the very, um, uh, I wouldn't call it traumatic, I think trauma is often overused, but I had a very uh, stressful period in my life when uh, with a very uh, difficult breakup. And that kind of just was the catalyst really for all of these kind of self-imposed pressures to come to the surface. Uh, I felt anxiety was a big part of my mental health struggles I, I i had a lot of panic attacks um i was kind of you know started very like infrequently but started to become more frequent and i was pushing through it all the time because i suppose i believe that you know a kind of real man should be able to conquer his demons and push forward and snap out of it you know but uh anxiety has a funny way of really taking over your life and then it started the, the attacks started to become more frequent um, and one of the interesting symptoms, actually, of anxiety is uh, tiredness and uh, extreme fatigue and exhaustion. We don't talk about it enough, but um, this is a this is something that's incredibly debilitating. And of course, then it impacts on the rest of your life. So you feel more ineffective in your other areas of life that you think are really important. And this is why perfectionism, by the way, for your listeners, is so challenging when it comes to mental health struggles, because you think when you're going through all of this anxiety and all of this exhaustion and, and the, this kind of lack of and reduced accomplishment in your profession, and uh, uh, life that you think perfectionism is the one thing that's holding you up right that's keeping you mm. going when everything else seems to be collapsing and it's only when you kind of i was only when i kind of realized that actually it was the perfectionism in me 
the thing that was pushing me forward to try to overcome these things that I just simply couldn't overcome on my own, uh, that was creating and exacerbating and elongating uh, those symptoms. Um, and it was only when I sought help that I was able to see that, that I was able to see perfectionism as creating um, a lot of difficulties and exacerbating these stresses and anxieties that I was feeling. And once I, once I had that realization, I was really able to kind of step back and work on myself and know and acknowledge that you don't have to keep pushing through these challenges that you can let them into your life and, and letting them in, letting things go, having a more balanced and, uh, I guess, um, contented, I suppose would be the word way of going through life, accepting that things aren't going to be perfect all the time and that you can let things go when things go wrong was really where I started to turn the corner on those mental health problems. That's not to say I don't still experience anxiety. I do. That's not to say that sometimes I don't get in low mood. I do. But uh, realizing that perfectionism is the root of my problem was really the first starting point in uh, addressing some of those significant mental health challenges. How did you realize it? Because it's difficult sometimes. Like, really interesting to me that you mentioned exhaustion and tiredness as a symptom. You know, we might all be suffering from this kind of anxiety. We might be suffering from perfectionism without actually realizing that that's what's happening. So how did you come to understand it? That is, that's honestly, Sam, like that's the hardest that's you know if you speak to clinicians one of the things i say often about uh, perfectionistic people is they um they will w- have a difficulty accepting that it's the perfectionism that's the root of the problem because perfectionism is this kind of mask of hyper competency and maximization that you know if everything else in your life feels like it's crumbling that this is the one thing that I have, you know, this kind of superpower almost that's keeping me moving forward. So why on earth would I want to address that? Because that's the one thing that's holding me up. And I think really, and I used to think that too, I I used to have that really strong belief that if I could just harness my perfectionism, then one day I'll get through this and I'll feel better and I'll feel normal again. Mm. And actually... (laughs) You know, uh, through a, a, a long period of kind of counselling and therapy, I was able to uh, uh, be brought to the uh, realisation that it was actually that very uh, perfectionism, that perfectionistic thinking, that very black and white perfectionistic rigid belief that in order to get through this, I need to be perfect, which was the thing that was creating the problems. And once I, once I was brought to that understanding, that realisation, as I say, I could start to let things go. I could start to accept that I have this anxiety. It's not going away and I need to work on it rather than pushing past it or through it or ignoring it or suppressing it. And so that, you know, this is why I was so keen to really get into this area because nobody had done much work on it in academic literature. So that was kind of a challenge in and of itself, but also because I wanted to understand the pathways, the mechanisms, the reasons why it is that perfectionism impacts um, mental health so negatively. And hopefully through doing that, be able to show people that this is something that we need to work on and address rather than kind of lionize and celebrate. You use the phrase black and white there. I mean, is that almost the essence of it? Like people, and I know I've been, I've I've sort of done this in my life and I know lots of other people who it's actually really held back because they think there's only two outcomes to anything you do. 
and it's either good or bad. But the only thing that qualifies as good is effectively perfect. And of course, that holds a lot of people back from ever trying things because they think I'm not going to do this unless I am able to make it absolutely as as good as it could possibly be. And therefore, don't try in the first place. So, is is that it? The sort of black and white thinking, where you can't think, you can't see anything other than perfect as being anything other than a failure. Yeah, it's so true, and it creates a lot of rigidity in our lives too. So we're just not very flexible or able to, um, or are able to, you know, let as I say, let things in, let things go uh, in difficult moments. And as you just mentioned there, and it's absolutely true, one of the other myths about perfectionism beyond it being something we should celebrate is that it actually helps us succeed. And what you've said there is absolutely true, and it, it is linked to this black and white kind of thinking, the sense that, you know, perfectionists are very good in, in situations where they feel like they've got a lot of control, where they can more or less control the outcomes of the effort that they're putting in. They kind of know if I do X, Y is going to happen. Right. And why usually means success in some area. However, once you put them in more challenging situations, which, by the way, is not the normal. That's, you know, we're going to find ourselves in a situation where things aren't going to work out more times than we're going to find ourselves in situations where we're going to succeed or excel. Because essentially, you know, failure is just regression to the means kind of most people are going to fail or slip up or do things wrong most of the time. That's the whole point of learning. But perfectionists find that so difficult. And they worry about it so much because they've got this kind of very must, I must, I have to, I've got to achieve this goal that they become very rigid. And if they feel like they're not going to meet that goal, the anticipated shame, guilt, embarrassment that they feel leading into that situation is so intense that they'll withhold their effort. And we see this in the lab all the time, by the way, Sam. So what you just said there is absolutely true. This is 100% what perfectionists do. Now, sometimes they will draw together. Sometimes they'll procrastinate. So this is why we see a lot of procrastination among perfectionistic people because it's essentially it's like managing that anxiety of being worried about whether we can do this. Uh, but nevertheless, this is the big reason why we don't see very strong correlation between perfection and performance. In fact, we don't see any correlation at all because of this kind of must have to rigid type of thinking, which means we withhold our efforts in situations where, where things might go wrong. So not only do you get a lot of psychological distress with perfectionism, but you don't get the success either. Um, and so, you know, this is another reason why I think it's important people know the truth about perfectionism. Why a lot of people, including myself, been sitting on that novel for so many years. <laughs> That's the classic, <laughs> isn't it? You think, oh, yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, you know, it's not going to be a Booker Prize winner, so you just don't do it. I, I you know, because you've got a sort of a, a background in sports as well. I, I, someone told me once, is there some sort of psychological thing that if you're running, like, in the park or on a towpath and you hear someone coming up behind you, psychologically a lot of people will slow down because they don't want to get involved in a race in case they don't win it. I mean, I know, again, I do that. Like, I won't just carry on going at the pace that I'm perfectly comfortable going at. I'll think, oh, no, I've got to actually make a show of letting this person go past in order to demonstrate this is not a race. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, I can see that psychology playing out in the perfectionist, but I can also see the opposite one as well because I've caught myself in this trap too. I'm thinking I'm still, you know, 25 when I'm 35 and I'm on a bike and some young, bright, uh, bright upstart comes upside me and starts sprinting away. I'm like, all right, okay, let's go. 
foot on the pedal (laughs) only to find you know you get to the next junction just holding the wheel and then you take a drink or whatever or you pretend to play on your phone just to i was always going to stop here anyway (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) um so it's a it's a real interesting one and and perfectionists are hyper competitive they're hyper competitive because that's their nearest you know that's how they get information about you know how good they are and obviously it's so important for them to receive positive information positive validation positive Mm -hmm. approval um that you know they'll they'll do everything they can to get it and uh including being hyper competitive or like you say not trying at all depending on how how close they are or how how able they feel like they're going to be able to make you know achieve the target if that makes sense so there's a lot of this high performance stuff that's going around at the moment. And I've talked about it a lot on this podcast and in things that I've written. Um, I don't like it. I don't like it from a mental health perspective or really from a political one, because although a lot of these, you know, people who who write about high performance or uh, elite performance or, or, you know, what's the phrase? World-class basics optimizing your protocols there's bloody loads of it and i read the brilliant uh, right guardian sports writer jonathan lute described this somewhere as nietzsche adjacent right and i thought yeah it's certainly factor right i think i've read you refer to it as that's right or it's been you know there is something political to these to this sort of personal way of thinking isn't there do you think that there was a shift as a result of social and political changes in like you know, the kids who were born in the 80s or 90s. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge shift towards this uh, understanding of elite uh, performance, high performance as the preserve of those who have made it through a very brutal selection system. Now, my trouble with this is not just, you know, the the uh, frame, how, the framing, uh, although I think the framing is problematic, but I don't think you even learn anything from talking to the winners uh, because the winners are essentially survivor. They're, they're, they're filled with survivor bias or so, uh, yeah. what we call survivorship bias. And what that means is that they've uh, made it made, made it through some selection process. Uh, and when you talk to them, of course, everyone's going to want to construct a life narrative, which essentially goes along the lines of something like my uh, position in life was due to uh, a bit like compound interest. I put effort and used my acumen and I made it to the top. That's essentially the life narrative that most people will construct themselves because we want to feel like we were the authors of our own destiny. We worked hard, we put in the effort, we got to the top. Now, that's problematic in so many ways, but mainly if you do it in a sports context for the simple reason that genes are so powerful as a predictor of sports performance that it doesn't matter if I put in the same amount of effort as Chris Froome in my cycling, I would never make it to the top because I simply don't have the genes to do so. Mm. So we can talk to Chris Froome and, oh, you know, I worked hard. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I put all the effort in. I did all the, all the rest of it. Um, and I didn't make it to the top because simply I didn't, I, I just didn't have the engine. I didn't have the VO2 mm. max. I didn't have the lung capacity. And that's fine. I, I think if we put the onus on the individual, and then we tell them all you've got to do is work hard because look at what these people did and you still don't make it. That can be quite difficult psychologically for people like, well, hold on a minute. I did all these things. I did exactly what this person is telling me to do on this podcast. And yeah, I'm still not making it. Why am I not making it? And that's because we miss the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that essentially there are so many reasons why people succeed beyond effort and hard work. 
Uh, and unless we talk about those things, we're not going to really understand what are the real crucial drivers to success. And that's why it's so important. And Sam, I really, this is something I really um, feel passionately about. If you want to understand success, talk to the people that didn't make it. Mm-hmm. There's a podcast for you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Talk to the people who didn't make it. Why didn't you make it? What happened? Well, I got injured when I was younger. Or, um, you know, uh, I didn't make it through the academy process because I had, you know, there's a family trauma or something happened in my uh, social life or, you know, I I came from the wrong background or, you know, I didn't quite, as I say, have the the same uh, genetic makeup as other people who just ran faster or could cycle for longer. You know, if we talk to people and we ask them why it was you didn't make it through that selection process and we collate those answers and explanations i think we'll understand far more about success than we will talking to the people who made it through that selection process because they're essentially their uh, their life narratives are biased and they're biased by the fact that they made it uh, there's a very famous uh mem goes that goes around the survivorship bias which is essentially the kind of world war ii example of the uh physicist who uh was tasked with understanding you know how do we uh how do we uh, fix our planes so that they make it through more more missions? And in order to do that, they looked at the planes that made it back where they were shot and looked to reinforce them around where they were shot. But the physicist said, well, hold on a minute. These planes made it back. So those places where the planes got shot don't need reinforcements. We need to know where the reinforcements need to be made on the planes that went down because that's where the <laughs> yeah. catastrophes happened. Yeah. And this is exactly the same uh this is exactly the same for these kind of hyper when we talk we only talk to the winners Sam. when we only talk to the winners we get a very biased and skewed uh perspective on what it takes to be successful um and you know we can that's possibly due to the change in frames the reference for people you know moving towards this idea that i'm the author of my own destiny so i must have been it must have been me and only me that made it mm. um but it really is you know it's it's i don't think we even learn much by talking to these people um if that makes sense but but what about just you know if we don't it, is, is there too much sort of focus or emphasis on wanting to be winners in the first place you know is that something that is you know is is that something that we should encourage our kids to aspire to to be winners or is that in itself dangerous um, well, I think we can have aspirations. I think we can always want to uh, master things, learn things, um, and work as hard as we possibly can to achieve those things. Um, as long as you know it provides us with purpose and fulfillment, I think those those things are never bad. I, I think what you're driving at is a good point, and what you're driving at is essentially, you know, why is it that we have a, have uh, a culture and a society that lionizes the one percent or the zero point zero one percent? Um, when really most of us, 70% of us are going to be somewhere around the average. And that's okay. You know, there shouldn't be anything shameful about being normal <laughs> in inverted commas, mm. uh, being somewhere around where most people are. Um, and, and I think that that really is 
this kind of emphasis on excellencism, this excellence on being the best, doing the best, outperforming everyone else. Yeah, you know, it creates a lot of pressure on people, especially when they don't make it because, you know, most people won't make it. And so we turn in ourselves, well, it must have been me. But not only that, it it says something about the people who didn't make it or it says, it says something that there's something a little bit, you know, shameful about that, that, that they weren't able to do what these other people did. And, and I think, well, you know, that's not a nice message. And particularly since most of us are going to be in that camp, uh, I think most of us are destined to feel a little bit bad about ourselves if that's the society we're living in. But societies also, you know, seem to move forward and progress well when we work together. And if there's an emphasis on individual excellence and basically being number one, does that discourage the kind of collaboration that societies thrive on? Yeah, there is that sense too. Um, I think a misreading of a classic misreading of Darwin is that the kind of the, the species that are here today were the kind of strong, competitive uh warriors that kind of outfought the competition um that's not the case essentially the species that are with us today were evolved to be with us today were the kind of conformists who were able to club together to stay alive kind of work out how we we could use our collective power to make sure we don't we don't essentially die and and this is a very subtle uh uh difference but an important one because what it teaches us is that we do have communal needs um, that are fundamental, uh, a need to feel connected, um, a need to feel like we have some kind of autonomy over our lives and a need to feel that, you know, we can do things well, We've ma- we can master things. Those are kind of what we understand to be our free uh, intrinsic needs. And if we constantly teach young people that they have to outperform the competition, that they ha- it's every person for themselves, that life is one big race, and if you don't keep up, you're going to be left behind, then what that teaches them is to sacrifice those more fundamental needs for a sense of t- togetherness, social connection, um, and push themselves in, into a very competitive mindset, which runs counter to those needs. So, yeah, I think there's definitely um, there's definitely a case for us losing something about that togetherness in this uh, yearning and, I guess, uh, desire to achieve uh, in sort of a winner-takes-all world. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why young people are struggling a little bit with a sense of loneliness, with um, with a sense of ang- anxiety and depression, which is also on the rise, um, because they are being disconnected, not just through like, you know, need to excel and achieve, but also through things like social media um, and, and the competitive workplace. Um, but I think there's definitely something in that. And um, what variations do we see in different countries? Like, is it particularly problematic here in the UK? Have you seen better attitudes towards this in other cultures and societies? Well, I'm not uh, a learned uh, traveller. I, I haven't been to too many other cultures or lived there, experienced them in too much detail. But I do know that there are certain systems which uh, have more emphasis 
on human needs. Uh, if you look at if you look to Scandinavia and in particular Finland, you look at the way they uh, teach young people in schools. It's very very different to how they do it here or in the US. You know they don't they don't give them standardized tests every five minutes for one thing. Uh, they don't start them in the classroom formally until they're much much older. Uh, and even when they are in the classroom, they have less time there and more time in the playground interacting socializing um, and what's really interesting about that system is if you look at finland's results in the pisa tables so this is kind of stem subjects they don't really do any better or worse than than young people in the uk or the us or canada who are under much stricter regimens who are tested all the time and under a lot more pressure so i think that what that tells us something interesting that you can uh, get the same outcomes in terms of educational outcomes for young people with a lot less input and a lot more emphasis on other, thing, other things other than competition um, and uh, testing. So, you know, I would look to Scandinavia, in particular Finland, for for ways that, that the education system might be a little bit kinder to young people um, and still get the same outcomes. Um, uh, but, you know, in terms of the workplace, in terms of university, I think most countries now have have pretty much the same idea it's quite competitive you've got to you've got to make sure you excel because in order to get into the top jobs you've pretty much got to get into the top universities um so i would say that's pretty consistent across the world and and is this really ultimately just like a product of of capitalism uh, you know the reason that like you say all these countries are doing it education systems business it's all it's all coming from there with the support of stuff like social media which only kind of fans the flames of course yeah i mean you know every single country across the world has to grow uh and if it doesn't grow well we know what happens there'll be a recession and that can be really painful for a lot of people particularly the poorest so if you start from there, if that's your starting point for an economy, that it must always grow and never slow down, certainly never stand still, then you will you will start to understand why it is that um we we have the we have the economies we do, right? We have the competition we do, we have the pressures we do, we have the consumption we do, because the whole economy spins on an axis of consumption and work. So and I don't know whether there's any escape to that in the modern world, because, you know, if your country decides it's going to take a step off, you know, take its foot off the accelerator and um, be be more focused on humanistic needs rather than economic needs, then you're going to find very, very quickly that, that you, you're going to struggle because there'll always be another economy somewhere else that people want to move to or that will be um, that will be uh, growing a lot faster or uh, have a you know more competitive tax system or whatever it is so it's a bit of an arms race I suppose is what I'm saying Sam and it's really difficult to it's really difficult to escape that unless there's some coordinated action at a global level which um is nigh on impossible. So I think we're in this system and I don't think we're going to be getting out of it anytime soon. And so, you know, the real lesson from my book really is to understand that, to recognize it, to, to, to accept that this is the way the world works. And within that reality, try to manage those pressures to excel in healthier ways. Um, but my answer to your question is, yes, it is the economy, but it, there's not a lot we can do about that. Okay, so I'd like to finish on just more focus on what we as individuals can be doing in practical terms to navigate ourselves through this culture without driving ourselves round the bend. 
<laughs> okay, well, I would say there's a few things. But the first thing we need to do is recognize and accept that it is culture that is creating these a need and desire to be perfect because all of the pressures that we feel, whether it be in school, college, university or the workplace, it really come from a desperate and almost morbid dependency on our economy's fixation on growth. That's the first thing. Recognize it and understand this is not your fault. This isn't you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing deficient about you. And there's nothing that you lack intrinsically. It's that your economy and your culture simply doesn't give you the opportunity to recognize that imperfect humanity. And so that's why we we have these struggles. Most of these struggles come from our culture. And that's really important starting point when we're trying to manage our perfectionism, recognizing that it isn't our fault. This is how we're supposed to feel. In fact, widespread perfectionism is evidence the system is working and it's working really well. So first of all, recognize that that's crucial. And then we need to work on ourselves. So once we've released that pressure and we've taken that weight of personal accountability off, then what we can start to do is begin to accept ourselves in really important ways. And the first thing to do is our culture will always tell us to go in ourselves when things haven't gone wrong. You know, we feel inferior to someone else. Blame yourself, buy a new product. So the first thing to do is to show yourself self-compassion at all times. When things haven't gone well, when you feel a little bit inferior, when you think that other people are living lives that you would like to live, first and foremost is to be kind to yourself. Recognize your achievements. Recognize that actually nobody's perfect. Uh, life is always is a jagged path and you're going to encounter setbacks and failures. So if you didn't do something, you know, you didn't do the, a, a good presentation or you didn't turn in a, a coursework that had it was an A grade, don't go in yourself, be kind. Kindness, kindness, kindness. That's the first thing to do. That's like taking a sledgehammer to perfectionism. Now, it's not easy. you got to work on it, but it's so, so important to be kind to yourself. The second thing is to try to challenge your perfectionism in really important ways on a day-to-day -day basis. So everybody's perfectionism has a kind of idealized image of themselves you know the person they feel like they should be in their mind mm. and i think it's really important to take a step out of your comfort zone and just challenge that person in really important ways um so something some things i try to do to break down my perfectionism was just to do things i suck at like just do them because that you know perfectionists don't want to be bad at anything so i mean in my life i i i'm i like i'd like to play a guitar um but i can't sing and i was really like worried about that like i was very self-conscious about that because i would often you know jam with people and i wouldn't sing because i knew i couldn't and i would be very embarrassed because i didn't want to show that vulnerability so, uh, so what I do now is essentially if I go and jam with people, I just get to the mic and sing. I know I don't do it very well. I know it sounds horrendous, but I don't care because mm. I, because it's important that I'm challenging that perfectionism in important ways, right? And what you tend to find is people are way more supportive than you think. Like, you know, mm. actually, it sounds okay. It's not too bad. You know, you keep working on it. You could get better, you know, and this is how most people react. Uh, and that can apply to all sorts of areas of life, by the way. If you don't feel like you're a very good speaker, just put yourself out for a talk. Uh, if you don't feel you're a very good writer, just try in, at work or even in your personal life to just write something down and challenge that perfectionism in important ways and send it off, right? That's important because often it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And finally, and this is really important, failure in this life is going to happen and it's going to happen 
so often. In fact, if anything, failure is fundamentally what it means to be a human, right? Success is sweet, but failure is so intimately revealing of what it means for us to be a human being because we fail all the time and it's quite normal, natural. Um, It's a set, you know, it's very humanizing. It's not humiliating. That's so, so important. So try to live your life through that philosophy. Make sure when you, when you encounter failure and setbacks, as I said, you're compassionate, you're easy on yourself and you show an example to other people that actually, you know, you're just a human being and all human beings fail. And that could be your colleagues. It could be people at work. It could be your kids. It's so, so important that you go through life embracing those vulnerabilities, embracing those failures because they are part and parcel of who we are. And as I say, culture and society will tell you to not do these things all the time. Okay, don't be compassionate. Criticize yourself because there's a product here <laughs> that's going to fill mm. that gap. You know, don't uh, challenge that perfectionism. It's really, really important that you're kept in a state of insecurity because then you'll work hard that um, you know, uh, and it's the same about failure. Failure is catastrophic, and we're going to let you know. And everybody's watching. And as soon as you fail, we're going to give you a one-star review, or you know, somebody's going to mention something on on social media. You know, S- someone is there to tell you and let you know. And as I say, it's really important you try as hard as you can to push back against that because that's where contentment lies. Contentment lies in accepting ourselves, and that's through compassion, challenging our perfectionism, and recognizing that failure is humanizing. That's a beautiful thought. Uh, I guess the problem is um, for you right now is that this book's come out, it's getting great reviews and people um, refer to you now as the world's leading expert on perfectionism, which strikes me as like, well, you know, this, this must, I know what it's like coming to book out. You're checking the sales. Things are going very well. You're, you're the world's leading expert on your subject. Where does that leave you mentally? Is it hard to not kind of lapse back into old habits? But that's the thing, isn't it, Sam? Like that, that is also an indication of like how hard it is these days because as soon, you know, you put a book out into the world, that's it. You've got no control now and you will be told instantaneously whether it's good or bad because you'll get a review. And it's not just me as an author. You know, my dad is a construction worker. His dad is a construction worker. You know, if they, if they were working today, they did a job. It's straight up on my builder or somewhere with a yeah. review, right? Somebody's reviewing it. They're telling you how you're doing it. And that's the same in social media as well. You put up a post, you put out some content. Somebody's going to tell you how you're doing. It's almost instantaneous. It, you cannot really just do something and let it breathe and just kind of hope that somebody will like it or it will be well received and that it's impacting people's lives because you're always going to be told in real time what people think sometimes they think it's really great and that's amazing sometimes they think it's not great at all and that has that can have an impact on how you feel and again it goes back to this so so important that you've got to take that weight off you've got to recognize that that's just the way the world works now it is an information world and you're going to be told all, all the time how you're doing, how you look, how you're appearing, how, how good quality your work is. It, I think it's so important to try and tune out of that if you can. So I'm trying not to look at the reviews. I'm trying to just let the book breathe. I'm trying to be very meditative about it. I'm not, not saying I'm able to do it all the time <laughs> mm, mm. because you do have a sneaky look. Of course you do. But mm. that's the most important thing to realize that you cut no control over that. You can't control that, but what you can control is how, you know, how proud you are of the the work, how, you know, how happy you are with what you said and and, uh, the extent to which you think it will hopefully impact people. And that's the most important thing. Um, But yeah, you're right. It is terrifying at the same time. (laughs) 
Tom, thank you so much uh, for your time and your thoughts. They're really fascinating and quite inspirational too. I think they would have been a help to all of my listeners and, and uh, certainly a help to me. So best of luck with the book. I can tell you it is getting plaudits, uh, just in case you haven't checked in recently. <laughs> uh, and it is brilliant. And um, the blurb and the link to buy it will be in the copy that goes along with this podcast. Tom Curran, thanks ever so much. Thank you, Sam, for having me. That was Dr. Thomas Curran. The Perfectionist Trap is out now, and I've included a link to buy it in the show notes that come under this episode. Remember to subscribe to The Reset Extra if you want early ad-free access to this weekly podcast, plus bonus episodes, live streams, and extra newsletters too. It's only a fiver a month, and it goes a long way to making sure The Reset keeps going long into the future. You can find it at samdelaney.substack.com. Thanks for listening, gang. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.